Hello. Welcome to episode number 97 of the Creative Chit Chat podcast. I'm Ryan McLeod and I'm joined by Daryl Gaffney Deploy this week. Um, interesting start to the episode as he pretty much declares uh, that he's not a creative. Um, which, yeah, is it's an interesting way to start, for sure. Um, but yeah, we sort of explore that and actually, I mean, Daryl talks about uh, his sort of discovery of, of service design and, and a lot of the design methodologies, how he's applied that um, and actually how he's found himself as a, um, I suppose, in the position where he's, he's done a lot of um, community based work and, and sort of community engagement work. Um, but it's now sort of started um, getting much more involved with the creative community in Dundee and trying to sort of bridge this gap between the two of them um, and and sort of starting to facilitate um, projects and work in that space, which is really interesting. Um, and one of the main projects he's working on at the moment is looking at a local currency. And I mean, mainly looking, researching into it and saying, what is it? What could it be? How would it work? those sorts of things um yeah so we we talk about a whole bunch of stuff um including his um political career i suppose you could call it him he stood for election um, in the local elections in 2017 and was an independent candidate um and just his approach to that um whole campaign was really interesting and sort of um very akin to the, the way he's done his community engagement work um yeah i think i'll just leave that there and the rest you can enjoy in the episode um but yeah um the i've got the episode obviously this episode um and there's one another one next week um which i'll tell you who that is at the end of the episode and yeah, I'll maybe take a, a week's break after that, and then it's the the all important ninety ninth episode, so the milestone. Um, ask me anything slash here's some things that I've learned from doing ninety nine episodes of the podcast. Um, so this is probably your last opportunity because I'm going to start work on it very soon. Um, so if you do have any questions that you want me to answer please get them in uh, in the next week or so. Um, it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and Instagram and facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. Ping me a message on there and I'll try to answer all your questions in that episode 99. But yeah, let's get into the episodes. This is number 97 and this is with Daryl Gaffney Deploy. I think probably the best place to start would be um, when I was 23, um, that was really the first time. I mean, I would I would never call myself a, a creative. Um, Why not? I think I think now I don't know. Really, I I feel that I do creative things, uh, or I try to add creativity to what I do because I get most enjoyment out of that, and it feels more natural to me. Um, but when I think of creative, I think of things like, you know, uh, poetry or art or um, design elements, architecture, those sorts of things. Um, and I, I just feel quite uncomfortable by using that, that word to associate with myself. Um, I don't fully really understand why I it's just, yeah, it just, it just feels uncomfortable saying it. Um, but for me, I suppose when I, I was 23, and that's really when I started to grow up, I suppose. Uh, until that point, um, you know, I, I, I didn't do too great at school, but I didn't do, do too badly either. But from leaving school to 23, I would say, I wouldn't say the word creative, but I would say uh, versatile would be a good way to describe myself. I had quite a few different jobs. Um, I was doing football coaching for a while. And actually, when I reflect on that, the football coaching, I did try to be creative around that. A lot of the, the drills and that that we did with uh, the young people, the young footballers, I would try and adapt them to make them more interesting and really reflect on what we were doing and try to incorporate 
my thinking into the drills that were that were set. Um, but at 23, I realised that the football coaching thing, you know, as much as I enjoyed that job, it was very, it was it was seasonal, really. You know, <clears throat> school kids had to be um, off school, and that was when you were really working hard, and it wasn't really a long term um, proposition for me. So at 23, I had to have a real long hard think about what direction I wanted to go in. I remember that summer, I think it was 2006. I had worked in the NCR as a, a tester for ATMs. And um, so basically what that job entailed was the engineers would bring out an ATM and you would get a fake bank card and you would test that for seven hours. You know, and then someone would come in and say, yeah, that's good. And then you'd get a new ATM to test. And I thought to myself, right, okay. If this is going to be my life, you know, or sorry, let me rephrase that. I can't do this. You know, this cannot be my life. And when you say like testing it with the bank card, is that just Mm -hmm. like going through all the different functions like repetitively for seven hours? Yes. Yeah. So you would um, ask for various amounts of cash. You would ask for um, bank slips. You would ask to put money in. All those sorts of things. So, and it was good money. I think it had to be good money, you know. But mind-numbingly boring. Um, and actually, that was probably the first time that I started to think about mental health being an actual thing. Until that point, you know, I just kind of took every day as it came and was just quite happy-go-lucky sort of thing. But um, that was like really difficult. The only thing that got me through that was um, it was to pay for a holiday. So, um, and once that was done, that was it. But it was a good experience for me in a lot of ways because it was really the sort of the final push to be like, right, okay, let's let's get serious about life a little bit. So at that time, um, I was thinking, right, okay, what do I want to do? And I, I remembered somewhere that I like helping people. I think this must have came from, you know way back, you know, in childhood. And uh, so I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to inquire into care work. And I was quite fortunate in that time that it was just before care work became quite professionalised. And what I mean by that is that it reduced these competencies for care staff. And I was just before that came into force. So I managed to get a, to get a job as a care worker, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it was more support work. Um, so we, you would take people out and do different activities. You would try to incorporate learning into that so that there was elements of development. That wasn't always easy, um, but it was good because you were getting to see over a longer period of time people changing and being a little bit more confident in themselves and I really enjoyed that job there was a lot of variety to it and also it was the first time that I was in a job that people were saying you know you're doing quite a good job here you know Um, and you were getting a lot of instant gratification from families from the people that you were working with that actually what you were doing meant something so when I look at that and compare that to testing ATM machines, you know, that was quite different. Um, so I, I was doing that job until 2015. And um, it was around about that time that um, I met my wife and we were, we were working together on an evening group for adults with additional support needs. And that, that evening group was an adults group and it was a group where most people who attended were they came without support. They were quite independent. Um, and they were really enjoying what we were doing. We were doing different activities that were getting people involved. It was very busy. And we started to really, we started having conversations about you know, a lot of the people who were coming to these groups were quite independent, but they didn't get a lot of social care support because 
really, they weren't a danger to themselves or others. So the government didn't have a blank cheque to allow them to get the, the amount of care and support that, you know, they might benefit more from. But at the same time of that, as, as at the same time as that, they were miles away from the jobs market, you know, and also even just volunteering was a really challenging task because the organisations, voluntary organisations, they're quite busy, you know, they're quite dynamic as well, and things can change. And the people who we were supporting, they need consistency, at least in the early stages, and a lot of that so that they can feel truly confident with what's been asked of them. So a lot, and some people did do volunteering, they really enjoyed that. But often it was quite a narrow range of options that they had to choose from. And um, we thought, well, actually, we're working with these guys in this adult group. We've seen a lot of potential in there. Is there something that, that we can do? And that was really the beginning of what, what is now Opportunity. And that was in 2015. And um, so we developed a, a programme. It was a skills development programme. That was really just the name of it at that time. And I went to my boss at that moment and. In 2015, I managed to climb the greasy pole, shall we say. So I, w I was no longer a, a care worker. I was um, in a senior position. I had done care coordinating job, and I think I was a, a team leader, I think was my the job title at that time. And um, so I went to the manager at the time and said, this is what we think could work, and it's particularly targeting um, people who don't get a lot of care and support and we could do this programme and kind of measure that. And the manager um, said, I don't really think that's something that we want to do, which is totally fine. You know, they're the manager and that's their prerogative. But it was at that moment in the time where I thought, well, actually, this is something that I genuinely believe in and this is something that I need to, you know, explore. So we then started Opportunity um, just by doing a therapeutic art group in a local community centre, it was Douglas Community Centre, and that started with one group a week, which quickly became two, which quickly became four, and then eight. Um, and at that moment in time, I decided that actually I need to do something different, um, just to kind of broaden my understanding of, you know, community work, I suppose. So I moved into community learning and development roles. I was listening to a podcast that you did, and it was with uh, Stuart Murdoch, and he talked about his early career being in community education. So community learning and development is basically just the, the more up-to-date version of, of that. Um, and I did a couple of jobs in there, working in Dundee, about... Um, community engagement and at that moment in, in my life I was also doing distance learning at Dundee University it was called um, a BA in professional development so it was quite broad ranging you were looking at theoretical things about um, leadership there was things like uh, literature reviews there was also modules to do with community learning and development. So I thought, well, this is a good fix. I'm doing okay with my studies so far. I've got these two modules that I need to do, so I'm going to focus on community learning and development. That'll be really straightforward. And what I found surprisingly was that when I was doing these modules on community learning and development, I was really struggling with it. And why I was struggling was because the the theoretical side of it, it didn't really have a lot of creativity to it. It was very dry. It was, it, this is just my opinion, you know, other people will have different opinions on it, but I found it to be really quite dry. There was a lot of focus on um, things like ethics, and that's all great, you know, I believe in ethics. You shouldn't be doing things to people without their... Um, them contributing to it or collaborating with you. But for me, 
it just it was so focused on this sort of model, this these competencies, that it just created the same results time and time and time again. Um, the same ideas came through time and time again. And I just felt that that wasn't the right fit for me at all. There was there was something missing in that. Um, so once I had completed those modules, I thought I need to do something different because I can't work in that way. There's a real, you know, real narrowing of kind of ideas and things that that can potentially happen because I'm I'm stuck in this in this cycle of following these these um, community learning development competences. So it was at that moment in time that I started looking at um, other things. And I came across a, a learning module on a, on a thing called um, edX, which they do modules online, free online modules for um, people to learn. So it's free education. And it was at that time that um, I looked and I found this thing called ULAB. And um, it came from a theory called Theory U. And that was Theory U without kind of getting too technical, it's like a, it's a framework that people, communities or organisations can, can use to respond to, to change and um, to explore it by using compassionate, by being compassionate and curiosity. And, and, and co-design is, I later learned that co-design is a real core function of that. And it was by doing that that, um, I was like, yeah, this is the kind of thing that really fits for me because there's a sort of, there's an, an, an acknowledgement of the challenge and everybody looks at that from, as an equal. And then there's a real sort of divergence of conversations about where things can go. And that made a lot more sense to me than the, the CLD modules that I was doing. Um, so that was a big thing for me. And off the back of the theory, I then learned about service design. And um, when I read about service design, I was like, well, hold the floor, actually. I've been doing a lot of this stuff, you know, whether that's been designing care packages with people who were receiving support and their families and, you know, the local authority and the care workers trying to really find that sweet spot where you can actually build a, a support package around someone where they're actually able to to meet the aims that, that they're wanting. Um, and was that, when you were doing that, was the term design used? When I was working in a care role. Yeah, because you described it there as design in a package, but obviously when you discovered service design, that design becomes part of that. But I was wondering if the, that sort of design terminology was used in that setting at all. No, never. And I, I think um, that is something that, you know, I think would be useful to, to, to apply those sorts of that sort of terminology, and not even just the terminology, actually, to actually apply a lot of the the ideas and the frameworks with InDesign into these settings, I think that would could really unleash a lot of um, capital, I suppose. You know, in terms of like um, ideas and different way of doing things, and people feeling a little bit more. Um, Connected with their role within the grand in, within the bigger scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, I think this. It, so many people are using design skills, I suppose, and in some ways, the methodologies and, and sort of approaches, without even realising, um, and actually not truly valuing what they're doing because they're thinking, "Oh, it's just what I do." It's mm -hmm. not actually what they're doing is it's, it's part of a much bigger thing that they maybe um, don't really appreciate. I would say definitely that would be the case. Um, and perhaps with so things like going back to right at the very beginning and you said, you know, why don't I like, why wouldn't I associate the word creative with what I do? 
um, because it's never been in the sort of vocabulary vocabulary of all the work that I've done. Um, whereas actually, um, when it, there's a lot of really design-minded people who work in care um, or work in community learning and development, um, but they just never they've never been in a position where they need to acknowledge that. And um, I'll probably come, I will definitely actually come back to that part of design within communities because I think that's really relevant to the um, community currency uh, concept that um, I've been developing. And that came out, that design side of things, definitely came out when I did some stakeholder interviews to try and look at the feasibility of the, the community currency. So yeah, you were talking about discovering service design. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so um yeah, so I discovered service design. So with the service design, um well uh, that coming into my life and having a, an appreciation of actually yeah, I have been using a lot of these principles within my work. Um I moved into a new job role and uh, I the reason why I moved into that new job was I wanted to really focus on um, applying the principles and the ideas that I had learned into a really specific job role. And the job role was preventing undernutrition in older people living in the community. So it was very specific. And I was able to, it was, it was a test of change post. So it was right from the very beginning. Um, there were the Health and Social Care Partnership in Dundee. They were trialing this role, and it came from the amount of waste that was coming from, you know, those sort of protein shakes that you get people in the gym take, things like that. Well, people who are undernourished, those sorts of shakes are what they'll be prescribed by their doctors. Um, but what happens is there's a lot of waste involved in that because people get repeat prescriptions and they may not even use them you know so quite often they'll be in people's cupboards going out a date um and it costs a lot of money so this this project was um created to look at creating community interventions um that might prevent that and i really enjoyed that job i did it for two years um it was year to year funding and i was able to apply the principles of, of um, design, but I was able to do it in a way that was authentic to me. You know, I didn't need to worry about the competent practitioner principles. I went in as myself. I had trust in my own. I was. I worked in a way that was ethical and principled, and I wanted to use these methods to bring these different stakeholders together to see what came out of that. Um, and I really enjoyed that job. We did a couple of, um, we started a couple of projects. Um, there's one in St Mary's that's still going that uh, called Come Dine With Us. Um, there was a, two in Coldside. Uh, what was, I'm trying to remember their names now. No, actually they're, they're gone. They're gone. <laughs> I can't remember the name of them anymore. But that, that was, you know, that was me then beginning to actually transition into someone who was actually just focusing on design in their work. The, co the content, you know, under nutrition, um, I knew a little bit about that, but it was actually about applying my understanding of um, design in a real sense, but also just being my, my authentic self. And that was a big thing, you know, going into being my authentic self. Um, and then I left that last May to, to um, perhaps do something a bit ridiculous, but look at the feasibility of a community currency in Dundee. Why did that merit such a big change of direction for you? Actually, so there's there's something maybe significant that I, for, that I have completely forgot to mention there. And so in 2017, I decided that I wanted to stand in the local elections as an independent councillor. And the reason why I did that was, well, we had the, the referendum in 2014, 
Then we had um, Brexit in 2016 and the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And I thought to myself, right, I've got two options here. I can either continue to shout at the telly at all this madness that's going on, or I can, um, you know, step into that world, I suppose, and see if that is something that um, I could be helping somebody with. So in 2017, I did that in the local elections in the East End, which is kind of where I grew up. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Um, there was a friend of mine who came out of the blue um, and just said, yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll help you. Um, I'll be my agent because you need an agent to do that uh, as well. There needs to be two people. And there was a couple of people that I worked with who helped with sort of designing posters. And I held these events called Community Matters, where it was just inviting people in, probably not too dissimilar to a surgery, but it was not one-to-one. It was just bringing people in, me saying this is... I mean, I, I was saying to people, it was really basic what I was saying um, when I was chatting the doors or speaking to you I think that local people should be more involved and local decision making, you know that that was the basis of why it was why I was doing this. Um, so, and we had conversations when people showed up. We had conversations about these things, and it was a really good experience. Um, even even knocking doors, um, I had a really simple sort of um, plan with that uh, because you don't get long on the doorstep, you know. Um, so I would. Start by saying, Hi, my name's Daryl. I'm standing in the local election. The reason why I'm standing is to think that local people should be more involved in local decision making. What do you think? So that was pretty good because most people had an opinion on that. You know, it didn't really matter. And then if they kind of spoke back to me, which, you know, quite often they did, I would then, I then had a question which was really, really simple. You know, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate the area that you live in? Generally, people would say, you know, five or six. And I would say, okay, so tell me tell me about why it's a six. And then I would ask, and again, a really simple follow-up question, okay, in the next 12 months, what can be done that would increase your score from a six to a seven? And I think that worked really well because it wasn't, you know, going into asking people their sort of utopian vision of Douglas because um, you can't you can't promise that, you know. But I was able to get so what little changed that people that would make people's lives just a little bit better to love, you know? Um so I did I, I did that um, and went to the election which was a really good experience. Um, we didn't get in but I remember on the day I tried my best, you know, not to kind of give myself a target, and that was really difficult. But I went to the election count at the desk, and I was looking around. So the East End, I think, what eight or something. So that was near the end of the sort of roll roll call, and I was looking around and looking to see what other ind- independents were getting. And you know, there was people. It was a range of from twenty-two to roughly about two hundred or 500s, let's say, apart from the, um, the Lord Provost, because he's, a, he's an independent, so he's been he's been in there since the 60s, so he was getting, you know, thousands. Um, so I thought, right, okay, if I get 100, then that, that's pretty reasonable based on what, what everybody else has got. And I came to the count, and I, I ended up with, at the end of the first count, I think it was on something like 250, but I had managed, and I had managed to beat, the, there was one target that I had, and I wanted to finish above the Brexit um, the, the candidate in the East End, <laughs> and I did. Um, but I kept on going, and I, and I done pretty well. You know, I, I finished above the the Green Party, the um, the Scottish um, what what's the name of them? The Dundee Austerity Party, which is kind of they were like a brought together with the different sort of socialist trade unionist factions in Dundee, I think. 
Um, and I managed to finish above the Lib Dems. So <laughs> I was I was pretty chuffed. You know, I went to, um, when the Lib Dems dropped out, I got some of their votes. So I really only finished behind SNP 1 and 2. You know, I, I had no doubts that they, uh, Labour were next, the Conservatives, and then me. So, you know, I was, I was pretty happy with it overall. And um, at the end of it, um, I remember speaking to a few people and when I was preparing for the election and speaking to people, the people who worked, who were a part of the, the Labour group, they were quite quite helpful for me actually. They were being really approachable and giving me a little bit of advice and I really liked them. Um, and a couple of the groups asked me to come along to their different meetings afterwards and I really did genuinely think about that. But there was something there that was just like, no, it just doesn't seem right. Um, so I didn't bother. But the, but the one thing that did come through for me that, that was really significant was that I realised at the end of it, you know, I needed to know more or do more or have, or have a better CV. And not in terms of politics, but just in terms of having more depth or range to a sort of portfolio of things that I've done that I could kind of learn from and say, well, this is actually, this represents my values. So if I ever do that again, I've got that to say, this is what I'm about. So it's not just me just, just saying what I, I could do or I would do, but it's about saying, this is what I've done. And this is why I think I'd be good at doing this, this job in the future. Um, and that was a, a big sort of moment for me. And that was probably when I started to um, think about things like community currencies. The reason why uh, I wanted to look at those was I was quite fascinated because I, I wasn't aware of different types of currency bar your sort of, you know, your, your currencies that countries have. This whole thing about a, an alternative currency was really quite new um, to me. And when I, when I heard about it, I thought, how does this work? And then when I started exploring it a little bit more, I realised that there was quite a few different ways in which it could work. You know, from like a, an alternative paper currency, like what they use in Brixton or um, Bristol, or other things that are about, you know, community empowerment or um, um, credit networks which kind of allow local businesses to thrive and, and things like that. So there's quite a wide range of things and the more, the more I looked into it, the more I started thinking, there's something like this could work in Dundee, you know. Um, I remember Mike Press talking about Dundee in terms of just how fortunate it is with where it is geographically. You know, it's a it's a small town. Well, it's a small city, but it's not kind of got like in um, Lancashire in England where you've got like your Boltons, your your Blackburns, your Manchesters. You've got tons of them. Whereas Dundee's not really got that. You've got Perth 20 miles away. You've got Aberdeen and Edinburgh. They're quite far away. There's, it's almost a, a city in isolation there. Um, and then around us, we've got, you know, Fife and Angus, where there's lots of sort of land. Um, and I just think when I was listening to him speak about Dundee geographically and, and thinking about a community currency, I was thinking about why couldn't it work here? You know? Um, so I thought, yeah, I want to explore this a lot a bit more. And so, so where did that, how do you even start that sort of process? Um, I, I could tell you how I started it. I don't know if that's really how anybody else would start it. Um, so last year, I started that process by, there's the fire starter festivals that, that happens every year in January. And, um, What's quite interesting about the Firestarter Festival, actually, is that the U-Lab and the theory used stuff that I built a wee while ago, um, the Firestarter Festivals came from a, a U-Lab hub. I didn't know that until 
um, just fairly recently. But anyway, so so what I did is at the um, Firestarter Festivals, so what they are, just in case anybody's wondering, is that Firestarter Festival is about communities or people, individuals, doing a, a workshop or an activity to engage with different people who are maybe like-minded or, or maybe inquiring about things and sharing different ideas or activities that can potentially like the blue touch paper um, and start a fire of new you know ideas or what have you um, so I just I arranged one called it was really just a simple topic called a conversation on community currencies and um, what I did was I did a little bit of research spoke to a couple of people who I know who I knew in passing just about community countries and I was made aware of someone called Duncan McCann so Duncan McCann was or is uh, a researcher for the New Economics Foundation so they're a London based think tank that research different models or different small small scale economic models that can maybe be used in regions or local areas so he had the he was a part of a research group who who went into went to Europe and did a piece of research about community currencies that were in existence. And that research paper was published as a report called People Powered Money. Um, New Economics Foundation have also done a report called The Leaky Bucket, where it talks about where money leaves an area, you know, quite quickly, and especially when we're in Dundee, this is quite uh important because Dundee is an area where there's a lot of areas that need regeneration and the leaky bucket talks about right if you're going to regenerate then you need to look at where the leaks are are you know are happening in the local area so if you're investing a lot of money in an area and actually a lot of that money is paid for maybe workers or contractors who actually live outside that area that money is leaving that area pretty quickly. You know, it makes it makes logical sense. Um, so, People Power Money was the book. It was the report that I read that Duncan was a part of, and I just sent him an email and said, you know, would you be interested in participating in this conversation? He said yes. We had a little conversation on Zoom, and um, so he, he he was able to put it, to describe community currencies and how they're in action elsewhere, so people could get a broad range, because I, I still can't really answer a lot of the questions in community countries. And the other person who joined the call was a guy called Alex, um, and he is the chairperson for Ecopia, which is up in um, Nairn. They've got the Fintorn Eco Village, so they've got a, an eco coin that they use there, um, and that's, I think, is the the longest running community currency in the UK. They then, the way that, they, what was quite interesting about the eco was that from experimenting with this, they then created a social investment, a local social investment sort of company called Ecopia. So they do a lot of things around um, building social housing. Um, they bought a, a school. Um, lots and lots of different things. Although that's quite different because the Fintorn Foundation is kind of like a, it's a spiritual and um, sort of ecological commune's probably not the right word, but you know a sort of place where where people live together in sort of harmony, I suppose. Um, so they they participated in the conversation a lot. I just facilitated that. Um, and that generated interest. So from there, I was like, right, okay, well, people are interested in that. So I looked at where I could kind of develop that further. There was a group called Unlimited. So they gave me just a little bit of funding to inquire into it a little bit more. And I did stakeholder interviews off the back of that. So I did about 40 stakeholder interviews. And there was probably a, a, a split between people who I knew from working in the community and people who I would say were more 
involved in the design world in Dundee. And what was quite interesting from the stakeholder interviews for me was that when I was speaking to people who were working in design-based environments, they were saying that quite often one of the most challenging things for them was spaces and places where they could use their skills to develop as a as a practitioner. Um, when I was speaking to people in the community, what they were finding quite challenging was having the space and time to look at design-based problems. And what I mean by that is that could mean something like, you know, the local community centre that have got a space and they're maybe wanting to make it more people-friendly or to do it in a way so they could do different activities or even just the way that they have to report their paperwork. You know, it could be quite bureaucratic and a little bit of time to look at how that's designed, how that system is designed and redesigned that, then that would save them so much time. And there's lots of things there that I'm thinking it reinforced a sort of belief that I had and that Dundee's quite fortunate in the sense that quite a lot of the um, the things that it is known for or is good, at, whether it's design or um, community-led work, is it's people-focused. But it's almost like these two worlds, they can never meet. They're, they seem to be like the sun, and, the sun and the moon where they just kind of rotate around each other, but there isn't been you know, as much of that. Um, interconnectedness is what probably we could or should have. Um, so from listening to the people through the stakeholder interviews, that just sort of reinforced that sort of belief for me, which again helped me to think about, well, actually, if we're thinking about a, a currency, you know, um, then that can be something that actually connects these two different worlds. Um, and it's still something that I, that I I genuinely think, but it's what is the right model, you know, and especially right now with uh, COVID, where people are, you know, a lot more aware about how um, diseases spread, things like an alternative currency, like a paper-based currency, the last few weeks have definitely begun to reflect on that, to be thinking, is that really something that Will work right now, or is it something maybe like a a mutual credit network that might be something that's um, more fitting to this time? But then you kind of got thinking the people are valuing more local things as we're all sort of restricted to where where we can go and what we can do. Um, that value of trying to support the, the businesses or the suppliers or the, the people that are around you that you use regularly when things are quote-unquote normal. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it seems like people are starting to, to appreciate that more. Um, so, it, yeah, it kind of feels like there's... Yes, it's an interesting time to explore that concept of currency when people are reconsidering uh, I mean, how they spend their time, how they spend their money. Yeah, um, I think so. And I do I do think that the, the community currency angle, the value behind that, you know, like in terms of connecting small local businesses that actually have it, perhaps have a good Better impact on their their environment than perhaps big national companies. Um, also, people are beginning to kind of be a little bit more aware of their own surroundings right now because we're stuck in them. Um, so checking in on neighbours or you know appreciating just how fortunate that maybe we are in certain situations. Um, so I I do think that there, that there I do think that there is still a gap there, but 
but like you said, it's it's the it's the forum that the currency would would take. I think is is the big question for me now. Um, so in terms of where I'm at with that, I got a little bit of funding um in January, and it took a wee while to come through because I, I put the funding application in, and I think it was August or September was when I got interviewed, uh, and then I, uh, I received some money funding in January. Um, but obviously, with everything that's going on, it's kind of it's quite difficult to to make any traction. Um, but having said that, I'm doing other things. You know, um, what what I have realised. So I might be going from this way. So I, I do apologise, but what what I have realised about myself is that when I was speaking about the sort of the two worlds that never meet, community and design. I started myself actually trying to traverse between those two, you know, so moving away from not just being in a little bubble of the community, but actually going to things and engaging with um, Creative Dundee a lot more, uh, the Amps Breakfast, um, going to different events like last year when the um, design festival was on. So that was actually, I think that might have been the first design festival I had actually spent a bit of time at. And I thought, yeah, you know what, I want to go along because I want to I want to support it. Um, so I, just, I, I put myself forward to volunteer. And by doing that, I got to meet, you know, lots of different people. And like I said, just not that long ago, what came across is that the value base of being very people-centric people or being holistic, um, you know, um, and that was really helpful for me in terms of building up a better network. And... I think those sorts of things that I remember when I did the Pitch Future talk, one of the first things I said was that the theme last year for the design festival was um, livable and lovable. Wasn't that? Yeah. yeah. And I said when I did the Pitch Future talk that, you know, for me, what makes a city more livable and lovable is the quality of the interactions that take place from the people who live there. And I genuinely, genuinely believe that, you know, the more spaces where the different groups of people who live here who are actually striving for Dundee to be a better place actually are, are actually communicating, then the better the place will be. Because you've talked about connecting these worlds and obviously you've done a lot of work where you're uh, getting out, speaking to people, and sort of trying to understand their perspectives of things. Mm -hmm. um, but like for you, what is it that what is it that drives you? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning that excites you about what you're doing? It's a really good question. I've never actually been asked that. I suppose what gets me out of bed in the, in the morning is, is the world of possibilities, you know? We're living in a time right now where there's potentially a changing of the guard, where people are beginning to stop and be like, actually, do we need so many, uh, do we need fossil fuels? Do we need, um, you know, to work 35 hours a week minimum? Is there something different that's out there that we could kind of change in our lives that will make life, you know, better for people? So, and I suppose that's kind of what gets me out of bed in the morning is that that, that every day is uh, just a new possibility, and life itself, you know, speaking just for for myself, I would feel you only get one chance at this, don't you? You know, so if you can live your life in a way that you're learning and getting the most out of it, then why not? 
You know, because it feels why like not? You push, like you've always got, you have lots of things going on. Is that a, is that a conscious sort of driver for you? You like to have lots of different things that you're trying or learning or pushing. Um. No, I don't know. I think I'm all, I will always be thinking, so maybe. But I would really like, what would be great is I would just like to have one or two, three, one or two, maybe even three things that I could just focus on, you know, like, and just see where that goes. But at this moment in time, I'm not really in that position. There's a few sort of side hustles, I suppose. That, that's a word that I've learned from creative people, side hustles, um, that I'm just trying to get going. And whichever ones will stick, I'll pursue. Um, but at this moment in time, they're, they're all just sort of itty-bitty. Um, the Emerging Dundee, so that's something that I've, I've been working on. I've, I would like to see that um, turn into something um, permanent. Um, so that's something that I developed last year, I would say, maybe maybe start of the two th- Sorry, maybe towards the tail end of 2018. So Emerging Dundee, it's uh, Emerging Dundee, act locally, think globally. And the purpose of that, or the intention for that, is to foster deeper connections with people and communities in Dundee. And um, by doing that, we'll have maybe a broader range of people who are participating in change-making. That's the sort of the idea behind that. Um, and that that came from the act local, think global. I know that that's the reverse of the more common one of think global, act local. The reason why I flipped that around was that I was going to lots of different events um, through work and other things where there would maybe be a discussion about um, something that's happening locally and change needed done but quite often ideas or points were maybe closed down because people would be like yeah but you know what's the point in changing excuse me what's the point in creating any change locally because well look what's happening in china look what's happening in india or, or america you know yeah there is a point to that but then does that mean that you don't do anything and the other, other side of that is, but you need to start somewhere. And at some point, you'll, you'll reach a critical mass. So if everybody just does, does what they can and not worry about trying to, the world trying to be changed within their lifetime, I think that's another thing is that we could be a little obsessed with validating our own existence by actually having seen something change in our lifetime as though, you know, that happens, so yeah, my, my life's work is complete or, or what have you, whereas actually we got rid of that sort of mindset and thought about the much grander scheme of actually just incremental, you know, humans, human existence has always just been sort of incremental shifts of kind of pushing the envelope a little bit more. So just by doing what you can, you know, these, these things can change over a longer period of time. So the act, imagine on the act local think global is really about people acting locally, doing things that are you know meaningful um, for them, and connecting with like like spirited people who are wanting to kind of do something. They maybe don't know what they want to do, or maybe they do, but they also want to connect with other people because that could be a real um, source of strength to feel that you're not the only madman in the village or, or or mad woman on the village or whatever. So just that source of strength that actually, yeah, we are feeling these things these from this change. And we are a little bit worried about, you know, if climate destabilisation predictions are correct, what nick the world is going to be in by 2030 or 2045 or, or whatever. Um, and just having that sort of, that holding space where people can just connect with each other, try to do these little changes in their own community, and you know, thinking about the global picture in that in that respect, you know, so being more of a global citizen where um, it's not just citizenry in a 
in a nationalistic sort of context, but it's actually a, a global context where we're all connected. And I think what's happening right now with COVID, we're very much aware of, you know, how connected we are with the amount of, well, I was just saying earlier on today about the, um, today the American um, oil prices for the first time in history is negative, you know? And so we are beginning to, re beginning to fully appreciate that we are all connected and the world is organic. It's not, you know, the global economy isn't just some nice mechanical system that lots of really clever people have developed over the years, but actually the world is, you know, connected as a, a large organism in which we are habitants on that and play a part in it. So. And the fact that it's balanced on a knife edge. Like what do it you mean? It doesn't take a massive amount of change in order to create a global crisis. Like, yep. yeah, I mean, it, in the grand scheme of things, there's nothing to say this won't ever happen again. And it's kind of like we need to think about sustainability going forwards. And it's kind of like the, the, even just some tiny little changes in our lives have made people realise, oh, actually, this doesn't hold up, this doesn't work if no one can leave their house or if people don't buy plane tickets anymore. Or, like, if we're so dependent on that structure continuing to, to be the way it is forever. And mm -hmm. even down to, like, you were talking about the oil price there, and, like, they're not having anywhere to store it or... Not have not been able to ground every plane in the world because there isn't space to keep them. Like it's these mm -hmm. ridiculous sort of mechanisms that we have because of the constant movement and sort of development of the world that, that yeah, it all sort of relies on what we've come to see as the norm. Mm -hmm. And this is where Dundee um, is perhaps in a really fortunate position because when we're talking about sustainability and design and you've got you know on, on the doorstep you've got um, the um, University for Design um, and I was reading something the other day actually it was talking about design and how sustainable design being used in industry and other places how that kind of um, might be the catalyst for some sort of um, New industrial revolution that's based on design, and but they were talking about how over the last maybe two hundred years, at some point, designers, because life was was you know becoming quite good for for Western cultures really, um, and designers started making things that were more for what people wanted than what people needed. And now we're beginning to see, you know, there's a great, there's a whole host of waste that's made in anything that's created. But you've got all these things that, you know, are not needed. They've maybe got a small lifespan anyway because they're just about the now. And as the now past, people don't want it. So design or design-minded people, designers, you know, they've got a bit of a responsibility as well to, to be a part of, you know, redressing that balance too think and why can't it start here? Certainly. Um, so just before we finish up, um, mm -hmm. I know we were sort of chatting about this before, but you're about to launch something new people might be interested in. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit so, about that? Yeah, sure. So um, so this is off the back of the Emerging Dundee thing. So what was happening there is we were having monthly meetups. Obviously, COVID's happened, so that's not, not going to um, be happening anytime soon. So I decided to try a podcast. So they're called Emerging Dundee Podcasts. Um, and in the episodes, we're going to look at events and people that reflect the city's character. And then we're going to have guest speakers coming in and talking about that event or that person and how that is relevant to now. So the first one that we did, which is going to be released this week, is about the 1922 general election. And do you know about that election? 
So that that was the general election where Dundee voted out Winston Churchill, and they voted him out. And there was two people who were elected: uh, a guy called E. D. Morell, who was from Labour Party. So he has quite a a checkered um, past or viewpoints, and also a guy called um, Edwin Scrimmager who up until now is the only prohibitionist to ever be elected to um, Westminster. So we'll talk about how these people managed to kind of capture those votes and um, how that relates to now, because in the way that we've done that is that we'll talk about 1922 in terms of World War One had finished just four years earlier, so the Tommies were coming back and, you know, looking for jobs, uh, you had the Bolshevik Revolution in, in Russia, you had Prohibition in America, which I think was just starting. You also had the, the suffragette movement had um, enabled women over 30 to vote. So there was sort of a lot of things happening around at that time. And maybe, again, as I mentioned earlier, a changing of the guard from the Edwardian times into this sort of Post World War One uh, UK, and then if you reflect on that now, we've got climate crisis, we've got Brexit, which will surely pick up again once this is over. You've got all the impact of COVID, not just in terms of actual the disease itself, but the the, the implications and consequences of people having experienced a pause in the way that the world was normal and thinking actually is this what we want to go back to and then of course there's <clears throat> there's indie breath too which is something that will you know no doubt we'll be talking about again um in the months ahead so there's all those things happening and but are we getting such a diverse range of ideas coming through from our politicians now or at least the range of options that we have compared to 1922 where you had, um, you know, all these different parties that had quite clear sort of manifestos or ideologies that they were pursuing or in which they were sort of put into the public for them to vote. So that's that's the first one. Um, but it's not just going to be politics focused because that would be boring for a lot of people. Um, so the next one's going to be about street poetry in Dundee. So we've got a street poet called Mark Richardson, who's going to be talking about what street poetry means to him. And then we're going to be looking at street poetry in Dundee in the, the late 19th, early 20th century. And so the podcasts are really, you know, they will be quite wide ranging. So, and then relating that to now. So I'm hoping to have speakers from, you know, the present day, who are doing things that fit into the theme of the show and then giving their take their take on the historical characters or events and how that applies to how they uh, conduct their practice or not. So okay. um so I'll put the link to that in the in the show notes. And um, okay. if anyone wants to find you uh, or get in touch, how do they do that? So far, um, the best way to get in touch is um, Instagram at dgdp underscore Dundee. I'm hoping to try and get a website over the next few weeks or at least a landing page where I can put things up to let people know um, what I'm doing. And um, yeah, if they want to get in touch, then that, that's the best way to do that. Okay, thanks very much. Okay, thank you. So thank you very much to Daryl for coming and doing the podcast. Do go and check out um, his podcast. The first episode is up. The link is in the show notes. Uh, yeah, it was really interesting to, to hear about that 1922 election um, and when Churchill got booted out. I didn't really know much about it, uh, but yeah, fascinating. And yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it for this week. As I said at the start, get your questions in. This is your last chance to ask me anything um, before I get round to putting together that episode 99 for you in a few weeks' time. 
Um, but before then, we've got one more episode. Um, and I'm pleased to say it's with Alice Black, who is the head of cinema at DCA. She works on all the programming um, and gives us a bit of a behind-the-scenes insight into how an independent cinema works. Um, yeah, fascinating episode. Yeah, I'm not saying much more than that. But yeah, let's have a listen next week. And until then, just follow on at CCC Dundee, Twitter and Instagram or facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. And I'll speak to you next week. Bye.